Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Okay, so welcome back to part two on acne. In the last episode, we touched on the pathogenesis and clinical presentations of acne and then started our discussion of treatments by going over our topical options. Today, we'll finish our discussion of systemic treatments before we see a couple of patients with Dr. Grumpy Pants. I give these gremlins flawless oral and written instructions. They do absolutely none of it. They come back. Their skin looks like the surface of the moon. They tell all their friends that I'm their dermatologist and then leave a one-star review on the interweb. Why am I even here? Before we jump into more on acne treatments, I'll mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. So if you listen to the last episode, you'll remember that the four components of acne are abnormal keratinization, excess sebum production, P. acne's bacterial overgrowth, and inflammation. Only one treatment targets all four of them, and that's isotretinoin, which we'll talk about later in today's episode. All the other retinoids, antibiotics, or hormonal treatments only target one or two of these factors. Therefore, acne patients often require combination therapy to get their skin clear. So, can you name four types of systemic agents we keep in the toolbox for acne? The systemic treatments used for acne that we'll discuss today include oral antibiotics, oral contraceptive pills, spironolactone, and isotretinoin. Starting with the oral antibiotics, the two most commonly prescribed for acne include doxycycline and minocycline. Brand names of doxycycline include Targadox, Actoclate, and Dorix, while some minocycline brands include Minocin or Solodyne. Doxycycline, minocycline, and their father, Tetracycline, are approved for acne patients age 8 and above. There is also a newer tetracycline-derived antibiotic known as saracycline, a.k.a. Cicera, that can be used for patients 9 years of age and older as well. For kids less than 8 years old or those with tetracycline allergies, some other antibiotic options include erythromycin, azithromycin, or Bactrim. Okay, so what are the side effects that you should be warning your patients about for each of these agents? As far as doxycycline goes, GI side effects like upset stomach, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and esophagitis are the most common. These side effects are greatly reduced when doxy is taken with a full glass of water and a meal. It's important to warn patients that calcium decreases the absorption and that dairy should be avoided if possible. Other doxy side effects include photosensitivity, vaginal candidiasis in female patients, and rarely photoonicolysis. Okay, well, how about minocycline side effects? Hmm. 
The side effects to be aware of for minocycline include the GI side effects mentioned for doxy, along with hyperpigmentation, vertigo or dizziness, teeth discoloration, and rarely a lupus-like syndrome or benign intracranial hypertension, aka pseudotumor cerebri. Well, you have certainly proven more resilient on this rotation. So what are the three types of hyperpigmentation for minocycline? This question is a board's favorite, so the derm residents who are listening should especially pay close attention. There are types 1, 2, and 3 for minocycline hyperpigmentation, which affects acne scars, the shins, and the sun-exposed areas respectively. My trick is to remember that the affected areas for minocycline hyperpigmentation go in alphabetical order. Type 1 affects acne scars, type 2 affects the shins, and type 3 affects sun-exposed areas. Types 1, 2, 3... Scars, shins, sun exposed. It's not that bad to remember, actually. Okay, so you've got a young female with acne on her jawline, and she will absolutely not use an antibiotic because her cousin had a rash from penicillin at the prom. Assuming you cannot talk her out of this ridiculous notion, what are two options you could consider for this patient? This is the classic scenario for hormonal acne, lesions in the beard distribution on the chin and jawline that worsens with menses. The two oral agents that can work quite well for hormonal acne are going to be oral contraceptives and spironolactone. The three FDA-approved OCPs for acne include 1. Orthotricycline, which combines a progestin known as norgestimate with ethanyl estradiol. Then second, we have Yaz, which combines drospirinone with ethanyl estradiol and is monophasic, meaning that the dose doesn't change on a weekly basis prior to the sugar pills. And lastly, three is Estrostep, which combines norethendrone with ethanyl estradiol. So again, the three FDA-approved OCPs for acne include 1. Orthotricycline, which combines norgestimate with ethanyl estradiol, then 2. Yaz, which combines drospirinone with ethanyl estradiol, and 3. Estrostep, which combines norethendrone with ethanyl estradiol. And how do these oral contraceptive pills actually work against acne? The estrogens inhibit ovarian androgen production by negative feedback inhibition. The ovaries sense more estrogens in the blood from the pills, so they go on summer vacation and greatly reduce their own production of hormones, including androgens. Estrogens in OCPs also help acne by increasing sex hormone binding globulin, which reduces the amount of free androgens in the serum. So again, estrogens and OCPs help acne by inhibiting ovarian androgen production by negative feedback inhibition and also by increasing sex hormone binding globulin, which reduces free androgens in the serum. So how do you screen your patients to ensure they are safe to start the pill and how do you start the pill? 
Since OCPs increase the risk of clotting, there are many scenarios where the risk outweighs the benefits. And these include, one, patients aged 35 or older who smoke 15 or more cigarettes per day, two, patients with multiple cardiovascular risk factors such as hypertension, diabetes, smoking, and older age, three, a history of hypertension, four, history of venous thromboembolism such as DVT or PE, five, history of ischemic heart disease, six, history of stroke, seven, current breast cancer, hepatocellular adenoma or malignant hepatoma, and eight, severe cirrhosis. When it comes to starting OCPs in minors, it can especially be difficult because parents still have a false stigma about it. So be prepared for a healthy discussion and have a plan B if they're not on board. Like a proverbial plan B, not the morning after plan B. Oh, yes, nobody wants to have that conversation. Anyway, what can you tell me about spironolactone? Spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist that works for acne for its anti-androgen properties. It inhibits 5-alpha reductase, which normally converts testosterone to the more potent androgen DHT. Again, spironolactone inhibits 5-alpha reductase and prevents the conversion of testosterone to the more potent DHT. Like the OCPs, spironolactone is also anti-androgenetic by increasing sex hormone binding globulin. And as far as spironolactone dosing, it is often dosed somewhere between 50 to 200 milligrams a day. Contraindications to spironolactone use include renal insufficiency, hyperkalemia, pregnancy, and abnormal uterine bleeding that has not been worked up. Spironolactone also carries a black box warning for anyone with a personal or family history of breast cancer. So again, the contraindications to spironolactone are important to know, so keep in mind that they are renal insufficiency, hyperkalemia, pregnancy, unassessed abnormal uterine bleeding, and a personal or strong family history of breast cancer. When it comes to spironolactone side effects, think of them in relation to the hormonal and diuretic side effects. Hormonal side effects of spironolactone include menstrual irregularities, breast tenderness, and gynecomastia, which is why it's not a good idea to use it in male patients. And then we have the diuretic side effects of spironolactone, which can cause urinary frequency, lightheadedness, headache, and hyperkalemia. Yes, you and every other simpleton gets caught up in the hyperkalemia... But what do you really make of it? For the hyperkalemia caused by spironolactone, there is a lot of variation on whether to screen for it and how often to monitor it. There is some recent literature that concluded that routine potassium monitoring in young, healthy patients is not necessary as long as the patient is 18 to 45 years old, has no known renal disease or congestive heart failure, and is not on other medications affecting the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. In scenarios where potassium levels are not checked, patients should be screened and warned against high-potassium diets including bananas, coconut water, potatoes, and salt substitutes. In cases where providers screen and monitor potassium levels, it is often checked every three to six months and with dosing changes. These kids and their coconut water, apple cider vinegar, portable hot sauce, whatever happened to a cheeseburger and french fries? No matter... There is one important medication we've been tiptoeing around. Tell me about isotretinoin. 
Some of my happiest patients have been those with severe acne who have cleared using isotretinoin. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time in today's episode to give it the full attention it deserves, so for now, I'll give you the basics of isotretinoin and do a full episode later on. So, isotretinoin is commonly referred to by its old brand name Accutane, which is no longer available. It is an oral agent that is taken daily for around six months or longer for one course of Accutane. As I mentioned before, isotretinoin works on all four components of acne, the abnormal keratinization, excess oil production, P. acne's overgrowth, and inflammation. It shrinks those sebaceous glands up to 90%, and for some patients, it's a cure for their acne. But all this greatness comes at the expense of some side effects, the most notable being severe birth defects. So what are some of these side effects, and how are they monitored? Because of isotretinoin's birth defects, such as craniofacial and cardiac abnormalities, patients must be registered into an FDA-mandated system called iPledge to ensure two forms of contraception and negative monthly pregnancy tests for female patients. Patients must also agree not to share their medication with anyone or donate blood while on isotretinoin. In addition to using iPledge, patients are monitored with frequent labs, including a fasting lipid panel, LFTs, and pregnancy testing. The other main side effect for Accutane is dryness, which can result in dry skin, dry lips especially, dry eyes, or nosebleeds. Other less common side effects to know include headaches, hair loss, pseudotumor cerebri, depression, myalgias, and arthralgias. The pseudotumor cerebri is only typically seen if doxycycline is combined with the isotretinoin, so we don't combine the two at the same time. And although there have been cases of depression and suicide on isotretinoin, meta-analyses have shown that isotretinoin overall improves mood problems because severe acne can be very depressing. Therefore, the drastic improvement makes patients less depressed. Even still, we often get psychiatric clearance to use isotretinoin in patients with depression. And there have also been very rare cases of inflammatory bowel disease starting while on isotretinoin, so it is also prudent to screen patients for a personal or family history of it. I feel like I'm narrating a TV commercial mentioning all of these side effects while the acne patient frolics around in the background with clear skin on isotretinoin. But in the end, just know that isotretinoin works really well and can drastically improve the lives of patients who need it. Yes, there are side effects, but we monitor patients very closely and we can avoid these scary complications I just mentioned. All right, kid, we've got six shots up, and I've got a half a pack of cigarettes and a basket of curly fries waiting for me at Stoopy's. Go see this acne patient, and let's get out of here. All right, so with our newfound base of knowledge on topical treatments, antibiotics, OCPs, and spironolactone, let's go and see a new acne patient together. Remember, you want to assess their acne and put them into one of four treatment groups, one being over-the-counter treatments like the medicated washes, two being prescription topical antibiotics or retinoids, three, all of the above plus the systemic agents we just discussed including antibiotics, spironolactone, or oral contraceptives, and lastly four, the patients who need isotretinoin. So you enter the room, it's a 15-year-old female and her mother. You introduce yourself, you start asking your basic questions for your HPI as the patient looks up from her phone and looks at her mom. Well, don't look at me. The doctor has questions for you. 
Since it's a new patient and you have a lot of history together, ask the patient what the story is with their acne. How old were they when it started? What are the trouble areas? What treatments have you tried? What are you washing with? How often? Basically, what are you doing for your acne each and every day? So my acne started when I was about 12, and it was on my forehead, but now I'm breaking out on my cheeks and my chin and my chest. I've never seen a doctor for it, but my mom told me to wash my face twice a day with ivory, so I've been doing that. We all know that acne can wax and wane, so you want to be sure to ask patients if today is a good day or a bad day for their acne. If today is a good day for their acne, then we may need more aggressive treatments since they typically look worse. If today is a bad day and their acne is normally much better, maybe we can avoid reaching for something systemic. The context for acne is crucial. It's also good to know how strong the patient's family history of acne is. If you're seeing a pediatric patient who has a first-degree relative who had severe scarring acne, you will want to pull the trigger on more systemic treatment much earlier in order to prevent acne scarring. You'll want to be sure to counsel your patients on the importance of aggressive treatment in these situations. Speaking of counseling, there are many triggers for acne to discuss. Might you want to look into those? Remember, the six acne triggers we discussed in the last episode include one, hormonal or menstrual flares, two, psychological stress, three, cosmetic products, four, mechanical factors such as sports gear, five, medications, and six, diet. You often won't have time to go into every one of these, but this is where patient questionnaires can be helpful. One trigger that is especially important to discuss each time with your female patients is whether their acne flares with their menstrual cycles. You'll want to know more about your patient's periods, how many days they last, how heavy their flow is, if they've noticed acne flares with their menstrual cycles, and if they get other associated symptoms like bad cramping or moodiness. If any of it seems severe, the hormonal treatments like OCPs and spironolactone are a consideration. A last pearl in your history is knowing how oily or sensitive your patient's skin is. The retinoids that we use tend to be drying, so if the patient has oilier skin and isn't too sensitive, you can use a higher strength topical retinoid. If their skin is sensitive and not very oily, you may want to start with a lower strength retinoid. Okay, so how do you approach your exam in this patient? What are you looking for when you examine the patient if you ever actually examine your patients? You want to assess the acne-prone areas closely and characterize the type of lesions present. Look for scarring or post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and take note of the distribution of acne lesions. The lesion type, presence of scarring, and PIH will play a big role for our choice of treatment. The distribution of lesions can also hint towards triggers, for example, lesions predominantly on the beard area of a female with hormonal triggers, or lesions on the chin and forehead of a high school football player, for example. So you're saying my sweaty chin strap that hasn't been washed in three years is causing pimples on my chin? I don't get it. Once you've done a good history and physical exam, you must categorize the patient's acne based on lesion type and severity from mild, moderate, to severe. Once we've done this, we will tailor our treatment for our patient using our toolbox of washes, topicals, and systemic agents. Unless your patient is an adolescent that only needs to start washing their face, pretty much all acne patients should be on a retinoid. Remember that retinoids are especially crucial for comedonal acne and that patients with oilier skin can usually tolerate stronger topical retinoid strengths. As mentioned in the last episode, patients need good counseling and proper use of their retinoid.
All right, Einstein, what is your treatment approach for a patient with a mild amount of comedones and inflammatory lesions? Patients with mild acne are usually treated with topicals. You can start with a benzoyl peroxide wash and or a topical retinoid. If they are significantly better and are compliant in using the retinoid properly, you can increase the retinoid strength or change the type of retinoid or add on a topical antibiotic. Remember that patients using topical antibiotics should be using some form of benzoyl peroxide to reduce antibiotic resistance. Okay, what is your treatment approach for a patient with moderate or severe acne? When it comes to a patient with moderate acne, you can either start with a full-court press of topicals, including BPO, a retinoid, and a topical antibiotic, or you can add on a systemic agent like oral antibiotics, or for females with hormonal acne, an OCP or spironolactone. You can even consider isotretinoin for these moderate patients, especially if they've been resistant to previous prescription treatment, currently have scarring, or have a family history of scarring acne. And then for severe acne, you're either using a full-court press of topicals and orals, or you're going to isotretinoin. Again, we'll go more in-depth on our approach to the patient who needs isotretinoin in a later episode. For now, I'll just remind you that all patients with really bad acne need prednisone prior to isotretinoin to avoid causing acne fulminans. Alright, that's all I've got for acne for today. There is still so much more that we could discuss, which is why you can't just learn acne in 20 minutes. There is an art to treating acne. It's not just knowledge of everything that we've discussed in the last two episodes. There are many other factors at play, such as cost of treatment, type of vehicle, complexity of the regimen, psychosocial impacts, ensuring compliance, the list goes on and on. But I hope that these last two episodes gives you all a good start for treating your acne patients. So, rather than ending with a lengthy summary, I thought I'd finish with some time-proven pearls from Dr. Grumpy Pants. Okay, I've treated a lot of acne in the last 30 years. Here are three things that hold true. Number one, teenage boys are the worst patients ever. (laughs) Keep it simple for them. If you prescribe more than one thing, you might as well throw the second thing in the trash because they will not use it. Number two, always ensure compliance before escalating therapy. If it's a three-month follow-up, you gave three months' worth of doxycycline, and they still have a refill left, well, guess what? They took a month off. And three, get comfortable with isotretinoin and use it. These patients' faces are your billboard, and you can change their lives by giving them their confidence back. That is all. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. 
Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.